0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, for those watching remotely who may have uh, missed our CME code, which uh,
1: is, we've taken down uh, is, it, today, it, the CME code is PYVY. Oh, hope that all is clear, PYVY. Uh, we're glad to have all of you here today. This uh, Grand Rounds is
0: co-sponsored by the section of Infectious Disease and International Health. And I'd like to welcome the section chief for that section. It's too many words to say again. <laughs> Brian March, who's going to introduce today's speaker. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Um, so first, note there are actually two speakers listed up there, one of whom is me. I'm actually not speaking today other than introduce Antonia. So I'm saying I did a total bait and switch on her. Um, a few months ago, we decided we were going to do a Grand Rounds on STIs. Partly because Antonio and I are sort of on a road show around STIs uh, in the region that you'll hear about, or the reason for what you'll hear about. <clears throat> so we said, yeah, we'll do this. We'll share it. We'll do a joint grand round. Sounds great. And then in a meeting a week or two ago, I let slip that I was actually on vacation this week. And uh, Antonio said, what? I'm going to have to do this myself. So I told her I'd actually be happy to come back this morning a, a day early uh, to share this with her. But uh, <clears throat> Antonia actually sort of grabbed the ball by the horns, put the whole presentation together herself, and so I said, uh, Antonia should just do it and uh, not share the glory. So it's actually all Antonia, um, and uh, thanks to Antonia for taking it on. So I think most people in the room know Dr. Altamari. Uh, <clears throat> she um, uh, did medical school at the New York, uh, New York College Osteopathic um, Uh, school and then came to Dartmouth in 2007 to uh, continue her training and internship and residency, Uh, stayed on happily for fellowship and LPMR training, so got her MPH along with that and then joined the faculty of the Infectious Disease Group in 2013. Uh, When she joined, in addition to being an active clinical member, (coughs) uh, she took on the role of hospital epidemiologist, which she uh, maintains to date. Uh, Over the last couple of years, Antonia, though, has had a steady growing interest uh, in our HIV program and the HIV regional work that we do. And uh, when Dr. Andrews retired two years ago now, two years ago, uh, Antonia took over as the for the Ryan White Part D uh, component of the HIV program and is a co-medical director for the HIV program with me. Um, As such, her interest in STIs really um, kind of blossomed. Um, I think uh, Antonia has probably been the single biggest contributor to uh, the epidemic of syphilis and gonorrhea in the state of New Hampshire. Um, not personally, <laughs> by working uh, really hard with our group to get very aggressive about screening within our HIV clinic. And seriously, we've uh, the um, number of cases of syphilis, gonorrhea, et cetera, that we've diagnosed in our patients has just been going through the roof after the last couple of years. Uh, so, with that, I'll end and uh, let Antonio come up and uh, educate us about uh, the state of STDs.
1: Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Kelly. Um, I hope you guys are as excited to be here as I am at 8 o'clock in the morning to talk about my most favorite topic. And my goal by the end of the talk is to actually make you STD savvy. So let me know if I do a good job at that. Um, These are our uh, objectives which were um, sent out, and both Brian and I have no conflicts of interest. So I wanted to set the stage, first of all, Um, about the growing problem, and hopefully it won't take much to convince you that we do have a problem. This is an infographic that I love showing from the CDC, just showing the absolute numbers, but then also the percent increases over the last several years of the cases of STDs we're seeing, with the most significant increase you can see in the syphilis cases, where we had a 76% increase since 2013. New Hampshire is showing the same. So I put in here the absolute numbers of cases of STDs we've been seeing that are reportable to the State Department of Health. And 2005 is there kind of for a baseline to show you what our numbers used to be. But you can see that between 2015 and 16, there was a significant increase that sparked um, major interest uh, at the Department of Health level for both gonorrhea and syphilis. You can see that overall, the absolute number of chlamydia is very large, but uh, the numbers have stayed relatively the same. Uh, but we have continued to see a significant increase um, in gonorrhea and syphilis. So many of you may remember or not that in August of 2016, uh, the State Department of Health sent out a Han declaring the fact that we had a gonorrhea outbreak. So you can see the end over the last couple of years, and this continues in the upward direction. Just looking at some demographics, you can see that the majority of our gonorrhea cases are in men. uh, and in the younger population, so we're talking about 20 to 30-year-olds and up to 40-year-olds. That does not mean that we're not seeing new cases uh, in the older generations. In addition to that, you may have seen um, in the news that starting in 2017, we have had increasing concerns about gonorrhea resistance, and this has become a WHO priority. Uh, going forward because in some cases, we have very little treatment available uh, for gonorrhea, which is a very common STD. So there was uh, one particular case in the UK uh, in 2018 and a gentleman uh, whose known contact was potentially a woman uh, from Asia for which he literally had to be treated with dual ID therapy to treat his gonorrhea. Since then, there's been two more identified women that seem unrelated to that case Um, the year prior, and these were identified in January of 2019. So comparing gonorrhea to chlamydia, you can see that our age demographic is very similar, but this particular disease is more common in females. Um, So again, steady rates, similar demographics, major problem. One year after we got the hon about gonorrhea, out came a hon about our syphilis outbreak. And although the numbers are a lot smaller, the trend was just as big, and we had had a significant increase between 2015 and 16. Here you see that it is predominantly in men, and if you look at the identifiable risks down here in the lower right, it is predominantly men who have sex with men, um, and people living with HIV. This also seems to have a slightly older shift in um, age, but again, when I say older, it's 30s, 40s, with the smattering happening in the older generation. So you can see the tail end here shows a few in the 60-plus um, age group. So what I'd like to do is kind of lead you through four cases of maybe more unusual presentations of STDs, um, just to make you aware uh, and make sure you understand kind of the implications and the um, impact that this is having on our population. All four of these cases are cases that both Brian and I have been involved in in some way, either directly or indirectly. Um, And so the first one is a 33-year-old female, G3P1011, who establishes care at nine weeks gestation. Her history is significant for the fact that in 2013, she had a spontaneous abortion around 12 weeks. And in 2017, delivered a healthy baby at 39 weeks vaginal delivery. She's married and monogamous for the past five years, And she gets her routine prenatal screening in which she has a negative hepatitis B, negative HIV, positive rubella, which is what we want, a negative urine GC chlamydia, and her syphilis test came back positive for IgG, IgM, non-reactive for the RPR, and positive for the TPPA, which I'm going to go through in detail and explain what that means. Know that she had no notable history that she could remember of ever having, primary or secondary, syphilis syndromes, and during her last pregnancy, which was two years ago, she had had an RPR checked that was non-reactive, but that was the only test checked because it was done at a different lab and followed a different algorithm. After we got this information, we obtained a little more history and found out that her husband actually reported having sex with men about a year and a half ago, so keep that in mind. I want to move to the second case briefly and then talk to you a little bit more about syphilis. This is a 26-year-old, female, gravida 5, P1031, who establishes care late in her first trimester. She has no known past medical history and monogamous with her fiance, um, and this is their first child together. She was recently treated for bacterial vaginosis. Uh, Her routine screening showed a negative HIV, a negative cervical GC chlamydia, and her syphilis, IgG, IgM, was negative. Her pregnancy course was complicated by the fact that she had several visits, some of which were outside routine prenatal visits, for an itchy, painful lesion on her labia. She had extensive workup with cultures and serologies and PCRs, and it was really all negative. Uh, and over the course of that time, she was treated with fluconazole, metronidazole, and topical steroids. And then at week 37 uh, gestation, she was admitted for a spontaneous rupture of membrane, ended up having an emergency section for concerning fetal decelerations, and delivered a 4-pound, 11-ounce healthy baby. In her post-op visit, she still had a vulvar lesion, but she noted it was significantly better on exam. It was noted that... There were ulcerations still present on the lateral aspect of both labia, the right worse than left. So she was prescribed Bactrim because a prior skin culture had grown MSSA, and she was also given clobidazole. It was shortly after this visit that her newborn was admitted to the hospital and ended up transferred to Boston Children's with a rash consistent with secondary syphilis that was later confirmed with a positive RPR of 1 to 128. So <clears throat> syphilis used to be a really big problem. Does anyone know what happened in about this time period? It would be the 1940s then. Say it again? Penicillin. Penicillin. Um, and some of you may remember that there was required um, marital, marital blood testing before marriage. And the majority of that was actually looking for syphilis. What you may not appreciate is this slight inflection, and I think it's because of the spectrum of this y-axis, that we're actually seeing an upturn of that, and when you blow it up, it's considered a statistically significant increase in the number of cases across the board, which you can see the majority are happening in men who have sex with men, but we're seeing a similar increase in women. And that is translating to a significant increase in the number of congenital syphilis we're seeing nationwide. In 2017, there were 918 cases of congenital syphilis, 64 of which resulted in stillbirths, 13 in infant deaths. And this represents a 44% increase from 2016 and 153% increase from 2013. To give you some perspective, the last case of congenital syphilis in New Hampshire was 2013. And in the past 12 months alone, we've had preliminary, this is preliminary data, three. There's been two confirmed and one still under investigation. So we are seeing a significant increase. And these cases are what kind of precipitated Brian and I going on our roadshow, because as soon as we heard about this increase, we started to really push to educate our OBGYNs um, in our system and around the state, uh, as well as primary care providers. Um, because you may too be seeing patients that are considering conception or coming in already pregnant. So the bottom line is syphilis is on the rise, and although largely attributable to the MSM population, infection is getting to women, and the rate of infection in women is also increasing. And as a result, we're seeing an increase in congenital syphilis, which could be devastating. So I'm not going to go through every stage of syphilis. For you, because I know we all learned about it in med school, but if there's one thing you do remember from med school is that syphilis is the great masquerader, and it doesn't always follow the book and the stages as we've been taught. Um, Particularly that primary chancre lesion we've always been taught is a single painless lesion. That's most of the time, but sometimes you can have multiple, and sometimes they can be painful or itchy. Um, secondary syphilis has also fooled both Brian and I on rare occasions where it has looked for all the world as eczema or psoriasis and the patient goes to derm, gets a biopsy and it's teeming with spiropes. Um, What is most important to know is that once those stages have passed and most people are completely asymptomatic or at least don't know they have the primary disease, it goes into a latent phase in which patients are completely asymptomatic And this can go on for years. That does not necessarily mean that they are non-infectious, particularly in the early latent stage. And this becomes particularly important in pregnancy. Tertiary syphilis we rarely see, thankfully, but this can go on for decades. So 30 years out, patients can present with complications related to tertiary syphilis. And know that neurosyphilis can happen at any stage. So someone can come in, with a primary chancre and have meningitis. If someone has uh, neurosyphilis, whether it be meningeal or ocular, isolated ocular is considered CNS, they get treated very differently uh, than if they had just a primary or secondary lesion. So I want to concentrate a little bit on syphilis in pregnancy. I know this may not be relevant to everyone, but really important to know that the trepanema pallidum can transmit through the placenta at any time during gestation, but the greatest risk is actually later in pregnancy. So the later in pregnancy infection is acquired, the more risk there is to transmit to baby. Additionally, women who get infected during pregnancy are at higher risk for transmitting, compared to those that were already infected before conception. If mom has acquired syphilis in the last four years before delivery, That infection can lead to infection in the fetus in 80% of cases, and still birth or infant death in up to 40%. Beyond four years, that risk drops dramatically to about 2%. And although the trepanema is not transmitted in breast milk, if mom happens to have a primary lesion at the breast site, she can certainly pass an infect baby at that point. So remember, these lesions are rarely found but sometimes they can't be found because they can't be seen. So, this could be inside rectums, this could be in the vagina, on the cervix, places that we can't readily see. So, how does that impact baby? Well, the spectrum of disease of congenital syphilis is very wide. Um, But the manifestations are influenced by the gestational age at which infection was acquired, the stage of disease in the mom, whether mom was treated or not, and the immune response by the baby. Because those fetal abnormalities are actually a result of an immune response from the baby to the infection. And the immune system isn't really fully developed to do so until about 20 weeks gestation. So you actually don't start seeing fetal abnormalities until at least 20 weeks. And only severe cases are actually clinically apparent at birth. So much like our second case where baby was born completely healthy, 60 to 90% are asymptomatic at birth and later on develop clinical symptoms consistent with syphilis in weeks to years after birth. So how do we prevent this? There are very important guidelines out there on how to prevent ongoing transmission of syphilis. And one of the most important ones is the screening of pregnant women, which is recommended to be done on any pregnant women coming in for their first prenatal visit, no matter what time in pregnancy that is. But there's caveats to repeat screening. Uh, and a little birdie told me, I might have in some insider scoop, that this may in fact be changing, that across the board, we are going to be screening um, pregnant women three times during pregnancy just because of the increasing uh, problem across the nation. But what used to be considered repeat screening for high-risk women were women who were ever diagnosed with another STD during pregnancy, those who exchange sex for money or drugs, Uh, those that are having unprotected sex with more than one partner, Uh, a residence in a high-prevalent area, which if you look at maps of our country, New Hampshire looks as a whole as a low-prevalent area, but if you get down to county level, we actually are quite bright in our southern region with regards to uh, prevalence, and on par with our southern region of the country, as well as the western coast, which tend to have the highest uh, prevalence. Uninsured women, women living in poverty, and any women using illicit drugs are all considered high risk. So if you think about the populations we see, I'd say that probably almost every woman potentially falls into this category, which is why, they're thinking of changing the recommendation to not just one-time screening, but three-time screening, where the second two tests happen at between 28 and 32 weeks gestation and the final test happening at delivery. And that way, we know how to screen baby once baby's born and treat baby. Just remember that syphilis um, perpetuates transmission and acquisition of HIV. So when you're going to screen for syphilis, you should also be screening for HIV. Aside from the pregnant women, it's recommended that all sexually active MSM be screened annually, persons living with HIV, and persons at increased risk. Of course, if someone is higher risk, they can be screened more often, but the bare minimum recommendation is annual. So I wanted to talk a little bit about our serologic testing, only because this this is where some confusion happens, especially when you get the report back, and we often get calls of, how do I interpret this? Does this patient have syphilis or not? Um, So there's two different tests that are used to diagnose syphilis. There's the non-treponemal tests and the treponemal tests. Um, The non-treponemal are less specific, but they're lower cost, and they're able to quantify a number that you can follow in the cases of someone who is infected and you're treating. Uh, The examples shown here are the RPR, the VDRL, and the TRUST. We at this lab do serum RPR, as the chosen non-treponemal test. We use the BDRL on CSF, but when the lab is marching through their algorithm for serum testing, it's the RPR. The treponemal test is actually much more complex to run uh, and a little more expensive, but it is more specific. In the end, it gives you just a qualitative result, so it's either positive or negative. These are all the available tests for treponemal tests, and I'll tell you the one we use here for that first syphilis screen, IgG, IgM, is the chemoluminescence immunoassay, so the CIA, and our secondary confirmatory test is the TPPA. And every positive test has to be confirmed to make sure it is, in fact, positive. So in order to understand how to interpret them, it's important to understand when you would expect them to be positive or not. This is a timeline of infection across the bottom. And note that this is years out here. And these are months, weeks, sorry, weeks over here. So you can see that the first thing to turn positive is going to be the IgM. When you look at that green line that's next, that's the IgG antibody. And then the dotted line is the non-treponemal VDRL or RPR, which you can see can dramatically drop off. So the fact that only about 50% of patients will have a positive RPR at about two years post-primary infection. So keep that in mind with that first patient who had a positive IgG-IgM, a negative RPR, and a positive TPPA. What are the reasons for that maybe falsely negative non-treponemal test? Well, two of them are either really early infection or really late infection. Because patients with really early infection, meaning primary or secondary syphilis, which we rarely catch them in the primary phase, but 20 to 30 percent of those presenting with a chancre will have a negative non-treponemal test. Late in infection, we kind of call this the it's burnt out, if you will. That RPR becomes potentially negative the longer out you are from primary infection. And then the other two reasons are you treated early enough that we didn't see a seroconversion, or the prozone effect, which is essentially there is so much antibody that it's causing clumping, and we're unable to interpret the test. And if that is suspected, you can call the lab and ask them to dilute the specimen and rerun it, and you'll be able to get a quantitative result. So I wanted to show you the two algorithms that are equally acceptable by the CDC for running a syphilis test and know that we at Dartmouth and any of our Dartmouth-Hitchcock labs use the reverse algorithm. So we first do a treponemal test followed by a confirmatory RPR, followed by a confirmatory TPPA, which is another treponemal test. So in the case of our first pregnant woman who was just having screening, asymptomatic, she had a positive treponemal. So it reflects to an RPR to confirm. Because that was non-reactive, we had to do another treponemal test to confirm whether or not this was a true positive or a false positive. And it turns out, when it is positive, you have syphilis. The problem is, you don't know whether that's new syphilis or old syphilis, so was it an old infection or not? And this is where taking a really good history comes in handy, because what you want to ask is have you ever been treated for it, when was that, what were lab tests, how long ago? Because in the end, if they've never had a test or never been treated, that patient's going to get treatment for late, latent syphilis, which is three weekly shots of penicillin, as opposed to earlier syphilis, which would just be one shot. So I want to make sure you're all still awake. I want to quiz you. Does this person have syphilis or not? I hear no. I think it's safe to assume no. This, again, is IgG, IgM. If they had syphilis, they probably got it within a week. If this is negative, and if they are high risk and you're worried, you're going to end up repeating this. But it's safe to assume someone coming in asymptomatically and screening that if this is negative... They don't have syphilis. How about this one? Yes, syphilis? You know when? Hard to say. It could have been years ago. They could be zero fast with that titer. It's kind of low. It's really hard to know, so you have to take a good history. How about this one? This might be a little confusing, because the way this is reported is not the way the algorithm is typically done. But look carefully at treponemal, non-treponemal, treponemal. Yes, they have syphilis. Again, how long they've had it, unclear. Question. Yeah. So
0: the second case, with the RPR kind of being 1 to 8, would you repeat it to see if it's going up? Would tell you if it's
1: acute? Yeah. So you could, I mean, you'd probably start treatment. But the idea is when, you're, when you've are when you had syphilis, your treponemal test will be positive for life. That RPR should go down with treatment. It may not get to zero, but we expect and hope that it will. And the only way from there to know if they had new infection is looking for an increase in the RPR. It's usually a fourfold increase from where they're starting. question. So this last one. We have a positive direct treponemal syphilis IgG IgM, a negative RPR, negative TPPA. What do I hear? Syphilis or not? Yes. Probably not. Because all positives have to be confirmed, and this wasn't confirmed with a positive. But again, if this person's high risk and you're worried, you're going to be repeating this. In fact, this patient had it repeated, and it was all negative. So that was a false positive.
0: i okay. you. Yeah. So for two and three, do you want to say they have syphilis, or do you want to say they have had syphilis?
1: So you don't know. You have no idea. It's really dependent on their history. So they could come to us, and this is the first syphilis test they've ever had. You're never gonna know. It could also mean, in this case, because these are all my patients, this is one who was in treatment. So I already knew and I was following a titer. And that has impact on treatment, is getting that history. Okay, so what is treatment? Good segue. So primary, secondary, early latent. So early latent is defined as less than a year, and you only know that if they had a test within that year or more. And if they had a test more than a year ago, then you have to treat for late latent. The differences there are the treatment of the IM penicillin either once or three times. Again, neurosyphilis or ocular syphilis has to be treated with IV. And getting back to our pregnant women, there is no other option but penicillin. It doesn't matter if she anaphylaxis to penicillin, she gets penicillin. And the reason for that is, All the non-penicillin options that we could potentially use in non-pregnant people are either contraindicated because of the pregnancy, they lack sufficient data on efficacy, or they just don't cross the placenta well. So penicillin is it. Remember that for the boards, everybody. All right, fetal outcomes. How do the babies do? Maternal treatment is curative. And mothers who get treated, (coughs) congenital infection really only occurs in maybe 1% to 2% of them. But those left untreated, you can almost be guaranteed baby will be infected. It's just what is the extent of infection. And this is really the push for why we need to screen and treat all pregnant women. Predictors of fetal failure are really how high is that non treponemal test at the time of delivery. Are, is there already ultrasound evidence of abnormalities in the baby? Is it early stage infection versus late? Has treatment been done in less than 30 days from delivery? Or has mom delivered in less than 36 weeks and this all has prognostic indicators for baby <coughs> so in general we all know that syphilis is caused by treponema pallidum and if left untreated is associated with significant complications and can facilitate the treatment of HIV good on syphilis Yes. all right I want to move on to our third case, and this is one of my patients um, who is a male who has sex with men he's been greatly controlled on ART for his HIV, and he's presenting with constipation, severe anal rectal pain, and rectal urgency with some incontinence for several months. He engages in unprotected anal receptive, anal insertive, and oral sex with multiple male partners, and he was coincidentally evaluated by colorectal surgery because he had a history of an abnormal rectal path for which they found on anoscopy proctitis with an anal fistula. They got a urine, GC chlamydia, and it was negative. So, proctitis can be caused from many things when thinking about what causes, um, what pathogens in the infectious world cause it. The most common sexually transmitted pathogens are gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and HSV. If there's more extensive enterocolitis or proctocolitis, then you have to think Campylobacter, Shigella, Salmonella, Entamoeba, or Giardia. So, how do we screen for these STDs? The gold standard is nucleic amplification testing. Does anyone know how you would obtain a specimen for testing? To perform this testing? People from the ID department don't speak. No one knows. That's part of the problem. Does this look familiar? Do any of you have this in your clinic? Yep. Okay. Because the other part of the problem is clinics aren't always stocked with the, white, the right swab. So what you need for a NAT is the Optima unisex collection swab. Although it says for endocervical and male urethral specimens, it can actually be used on other specimens. And it was recently FDA approved for use on the rectum. That was a long time coming where we've been using it on rectal specimens, but it actually wasn't FDA approved. It is now. We know. From data that the sensitivity and specificity of urine samples compared to cervical or urethral in women is very similar. We also know that when we allow the patient to self-collect um, specimens, it is, it is comparable to when a provider collects it. So in our clinic, we offer, do you want to do this yourself or would you like me to do it? Um, so it can be used for vaginal, oropharyngeal, rectal, urethral, and conjunctival specimen, which is most commonly used in the neonates. When it comes to screening men who have sex with men, the USPSTF recommends screening for all three infectious diseases, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, at least annually, but obviously more frequently if they're high risk. And they recommend testing all three sites or all sites of contact. I guess there could be more than three. But the three most common are urethral, rectum, and oropharynx. We know that if you collect a urine-only GC chlamydia in this population, you will miss up to 88% of infections. And on top of that, rectal gonorrhea is asymptomatic 85% of the time. you have a
0: question? Is, how long do you have to sample? When, when you do a cervical sample
1: with that, it's 20 seconds or 10 to 30? Any... We say about 10 okay. is what we do, and that's what we tell the patients to do, too. So, if this is hard for you to remember, remember this image. Thank you to the National Network of STD Clinical Prevention Training Centers for ruining ice cream for me. But they have this awesome graphic that's called the triple dip. And this is what you have to remember for screening MSM. You want to do a rectal GC chlamydia, a urine GC chlamydia, a pharyngeal GC, and the cherry on top is making sure you don't forget HIV, syphilis, and hepatitis C, which can be transmitted via anal. Sets. So remember that. Know that too, a test of cure is not recommended unless you suspect the patient's not taking their medication or symptoms persist or reinfection is suspected. And that a nucleic amplification test shouldn't be done in less than three weeks after you've treated someone because you're likely to pick up on dead organism and it doesn't mean that they're still infected and need retreatment. But it is recommended that you repeat screening at three months, because there is a high risk of reinfection, particularly if the partner doesn't get treated at the same time. So this patient comes back to ID clinic for routine follow-up about three months after they're seen in GI, part of that was we couldn't get in touch with him, and we do a rectal swab, and lo and behold, it's positive for chlamydia. We empirically treated him with IM-septriaxone and doxycycline for 21 days because we had a very high suspicion for lymphogranuloma venereum, which is a variant of chlamydia infection usually um, caused by serovar L1, 2, 2, or 3, and can cause a proctocolitis that really mimics inflammatory bowel disease. And it can, just like inflammatory bowel disease, if left untreated, lead to colorectal fistulas and strictures. Typically, this is a disease that's been often found in the tropics and subtropic areas, but we are seeing it in the United States in increasing frequency, and there's known to have been outbreaks among MSM in uh, certain geographic locations, including a large one in the UK as well as New York City. So primary infection is often missed. Again, this is an ulcer or mucosal inflammation of the site of inoculation that usually goes away within days. It's usually the secondary stage in which this particular patient presented where you start to get either an inguinal syndrome, which is unilateral painful buboes, or an anorectal syndrome causing proctocolitis. And if again, late stage if untreated, fibrosis and strictures can develop. Diagnosing this is not um, particularly hard, but it's hard to get a definitive on it because it requires PCR testing, which we don't do on site, and it actually has to be sent to the CDC or specialty labs to do that. However, if you take a good history and they're at risk, and you get a positive rectal chlamydia back, you can probably be, be confident that in this severe case, it's probably the zero var one through three, um, and that it's uh, lymphogranuloma venerium. And the reason to know that is because treatment dramatically differs for LGB than it does just chlamydial infection of the rectum that's often asymptomatic. Okay. Last case, this is a 25-year-old male presenting with severe sore throat, diagnosed and treated for strep throat, and several days later developed fevers and a diffuse erythematous rash on his trunks and arms, sparing his palms and soles. He is a man who has sex with men. He has multiple partners, has inconsistently been using condoms, was on PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, but hasn't taken it in the last several months, and has a history of genital HSV and gonorrhea. Differential. Let's see. Reactivation syndrome. All right, I'll give you some hints. Let's talk about maybe acute HIV. Very nonspecific symptoms that can develop within four weeks of infection, and we call it the acute retroviral syndrome. If you look at the incidence of symptoms, you really. It's non-specific. it could be anything. It could be mono, it could be another mono-like illness, but the key is taking a good history and assessing risk factors, and keeping this in your differential um, for what to work up in an individual. Symptoms can last days to weeks, so very, very similar to mono, and 50, up to 50% of individuals in early infection are asymptomatic, and I think it's partly because they just ignore or don't actually recall having had the syndrome. So there are about 1.1 million people living in the U.S. with HIV, and the number of people who do not know that they have HIV has actually gone down considerably, thank goodness, from 25% to about 15% now. Looking at how many people in New Hampshire are living with HIV, you know that we have about 1 million people living here, uh, and about 1,000 are living with HIV, and this was data based on 2017 census. Um, The annual incidence, so new diagnoses, is decreasing over time, um, but people with HIV are living longer. And so now we're having to deal with the effects of cancers, uh, heart attacks, strokes, and the fact that they just have what we're now seeing as a chronic disease. Looking at our demographics, the majority of people with HIV in New Hampshire are male. Um, You can see that the age is somewhat spread. There isn't a small population, and this is incidence, so new diagnoses by age group. But the by-risk factor, MSM really are the highest risk factor in New Hampshire. I just wanted to show you some starking data from the CDC, and although this may not look significant, it is significant, the downtrend statistically, um, but when looking at uh, demographics, 82% are male, again, mirroring what we're seeing, This is concerning because as all age groups are going down in in incidence, the 25 to 34-year-olds are actually going up. It disproportionately affects the black African-Americans. So 42% of new diagnoses are black. And by risk factor, it's overwhelming majority men who have sex with men. So putting it all together, the stark, stark statistic is that one in two young black gay men will become infected with HIV. And this is a reality in our southern region of the United States. I like to show this because this is our care continuum. This is what we look at when we're saying, how well are we doing? It's the percent of people being diagnosed, the percent that get into care, the percent that stay in care, and the percent we have virologically suppressed. And this is important to note because the UNAIDS had put out a 2020 goal of 90-90-90, which meant 90% of people know their diagnosis. 90% of them are on treatment, and 90% of them are virologically suppressed. And if we are able to achieve that, the goal was to end the epidemic by 2030, which means end ongoing transmission of HIV. So how did we start by doing that? Well, it started in 2006 with revised recommendations on screening for HIV, where it was recommended it now be an opt-out. So patients did not have to opt in. They had to just say, no, thank you, but it was assumed you were going to get tested for all adults. um, And annually for those that are considered high risk. And then, of course, there was the note about prenatal screening. Just like with syphilis, it's important to understand when we're testing how to interpret the test based on when test results would be positive uh, in the spectrum of disease. So you can see that our HIV serologic test started here, where we had a pretty large window period of time where we could have missed infection. That has narrowed down quite a bit over time with newer generations of tests. We are now on our fourth iteration of a test, and the benefit and new thing about this fourth generation test is the fact that it adds in the P24 antigen, which detects HIV infection earlier than if you were just looking for antibody. And in fact, there's a window period of maybe about two weeks where you could miss someone with uh, acute HIV just based on this screening test. So this is how the test is run, and is also very confusing on how it's reported, so this is why I wanted to show you. Together, the first screen is a screen for the antigen and total antibody. And if that screen is positive, The confirmatory test is a differential antibody test for HIV one and two. If that confirms to be negative or indeterminate, then you have to order a separate viral load to confirm infection. If it's negative off the bat, then it's negative. But remember, if they're high risk and you're suspecting acute HIV, you may not be stopping there. So in our case, Our patient actually had a negative HIV test two months prior to his presentation, and he got an HIV screen again at the time that he presented with his acute mono-like illness. If you double-click on the words that say presumptive positive, you will get this box that explains how to interpret it, saying that this is a fourth-generation test, and it's there to detect the presence of antigen and antibodies, And if it's negative, it does not rule out acute HIV infection, and if that is suspected, you can repeat it in a couple weeks or check a nucleic amplification test um, on the serum. Again, the lab doesn't reflect to that, so you have to call the patient back in to get new blood drawn to run the test. (coughs) His test finalized with confirmation as negative. So his differential antibody test for antibody one and two came back negative, and so the final conclusion was that this patient was HIV negative. Again, high suspicion requires further testing, and he did get a viral load and had three million copies of HIV. So where did he land? So when you look at acute HIV, there is a time period, potentially right at the beginning, of, sorry, this pointer is not working. Um, around the 14 ish day, maybe even a little sooner, where your antibody test could be negative, but your antigen is positive and your viral load is certainly detectable. So it's possible that his first screen came out positive because it detected antigen, but there wasn't enough antibody or any antibody um, to trigger uh, the cascade to confirm with positive antibody. So, in conclusion, STDs are not lost and they should not be forgotten. Screening is easy, just take a detailed sexual history and think triple dip, especially for MSM. Congenital syphilis is on the rise and all pregnant women need to be screened at least once if not three times during pregnancy. LGV, or lymphogranuloma venerium, is a form of chlamydia that should not be missed and proctitis in an MSM is chlamydia until proven otherwise. Acute HIV is a mono-like illness, and a negative HIV screen does not rule out HIV in high-risk individuals. Questions? Yeah?
0: So just for clarification, um, you know, I'm in occupational health, and we test the source patient if there's been a needle stick
1: with one of the employees'
0: health workers. So I would like to believe that we do this when we have the fourth-generation um, HIV, and if that's negative, we can be rest assured and tell the exposed employee that there is no risk for HIV transmission. If I'm hearing you correctly, if there is a high suspicion that that, pers- that source patient has HIV, we should be doing viral loads.
1: on the patient. So I think on the patient, issue is patient. exactly. So I think the issue is that um, sometimes this happens also with um, hepatitis C. So it takes a little while to produce the antibody to turn the test positive. And if for whatever reason they could have had a situation where they were high risk and acquired it right before admission, they are highest risk at that point for transmitting because they have the highest viral load. So it really depends on the risk factors of the source patient and whether you can confidently say that test is negative, there's no way they're HIV positive versus maybe we should check Another test and we are unfortunately seeing an increase in HIV being transmitted with IV drug use so it would be that population I'd be a little more worried did they do something right before coming in that could have been you know acquired acute HIV and needs further testing
0: so I know we're going to be offline I would like to make sure that we have a a protocol that really addresses that that sure thank you yeah yeah as the queen of the triple dip, yeah. <laughs> you that you've got gonorrhea and chlamydia in all these different compartments that are <clears throat> separate. Why isn't chlamydia in
1: people's throats? Oh, so that's a really good question. So I actually looked this up because I was like, why don't they recommend? It? Because you can get chlamydia infection there. And the thing that I could find is that it's just met much less likely when they did population studies of chlamydia and gonorrhea, both infection and carriage. That it was less than 2% ever had a positive chlamydia. It was more often positive elsewhere, and you'd probably be um, finding it elsewhere. And if they have gonorrhea, you're going to be treating essentially for chlamydia as well. And so the, I don't know if there's any other reason why they do not, they specifically say, do not test for chlamydia in the oropharynx, just gonorrhea.
0: Yeah. In addition, there are more false positives to the oral test, um, simply because we all have chlamydia organisms in our oropharynx. So a positive is hard to interpret.
1: Other questions?
0: Well, so this may not be as big a problem as the, the ones they've highlighted, but HSV is another difficult one in, I mean, pregnancy, but in general, too, testing for it, interpreting the testing, and there are, are there there are no recommendations at this point to test in pregnancy right
1: There are and serologic testing is almost never recommended because once you have it you will always be positive it people who have acquired HSV may not even know they ever acquired it so you can have asymptomatic acquisition never have that first eruption until you know years down the line you have that first eruption um, Unfortunately though even without primary lesions you can still spread it and that is a concern potentially in the um, pregnant women vaginally delivering babies where it could be shedding in the mucosa. And again, increases the risk of acquisition of HIV as well. But there aren't any recommendations right now to screen asymptomatically for herpes. If there are, oh, is a question.
0: Antonia, can you speak to partner notification and what
1: the rules are about that? Yeah, so um, New Hampshire had uh, recently passed a law um, allowing providers legally to provide um, treatment for partners. Partner notification, we recommend the patient does, so it's not our responsibility and we shouldn't be calling. Um, unfortunately, in New Hampshire, because of um, fundings that have been cut over and over, they actually, unfortunately, don't do anything with the positive chlamydia's because there are so many that it overwhelms the system that they have not been doing any partner notification. So it's even more important for you to educate the patient on, please let all your partners know of this diagnosis because they may need treatment. They do, however, do it for gonorrhea and syphilis and HIV. Um, Chlamydia is just overwhelming them because of the sheer numbers. So the law does allow us as providers to the patient in front of us to prescribe treatment for their partners, even though we've never met their partner. Obviously you want to make sure their partner doesn't have any allergic reactions or any major contraindications, but we are allowed to prescribe to those that we don't see.
0: Just on that, that it's state legislation that permits that. So it's allowed in some states and not others, and you just need to know what uh, is, uh, what's the case in the state you're practicing in. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about logistically how to do that? Uh, in our system without
1: HEPA violations, that means you have to go into that patient's chart and that, that patient's not in front of you. So, how how does one navigate that? And then the problem is if they're not a patient in our system, how do you get them registered? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. How do
0: you do it? So, what's the question here? No, you if, if you're prescribed to a patient who's not sitting
1: in front of you, you have to enter their medical record yep.
0: right here. <laughs> so, um, so, how do we do that and not? Uh, Finally, HIPAA,
1: for that patient's privacy, who's not here to tell us, yes, I'd like you to give me a prescription.
0: I'm going to answer, but one of our uh, nurses is very actively involved in this. I would like to comment. That's it. Uh, First of all, a caveat on that, um, specifically for the Hampshire department of health, they do not recommend doing this for MSM um, because the... um, Any STI is indication for HIV testing. Recommendation, get people on PrEP, which is really not happening in New Hampshire, um, and uh, getting on the preventative medicine, and wanting to make sure we're screening for other STIs. So it's specifically written in New Hampshire, not as a law, but as a recommendation that this not be done for MSM, which is what most of the population that we're working with is. So I think we we aren't having a lot of experience, but you do not need to go into a medical record. It can be done, I mean, yeah, nice. the easiest oh, way is to uh, um, call the pharmacy and just get a yeah. oral prescription. Yeah. So, about uh, 12 years ago, I had a man at the VA who had syphilis. What was really important about taking care of that patient is that his primary care provider, which was me, and all the students that I talked with afterwards did a very, very inadequate care history-taking for, uh, for sexual, sexual contact, and, and I, I think, I, I worry that, I don't know what's happening in medical schools, but it, the, incident, the need to really be able to take a careful sexual, sexual history can't be, be Overestimated. Mm-hmm. Over- mm-hmm.
1: That's right.
0: So, if there are no other questions, maybe we'll just take a couple minutes since we have left, just to uh, sort of move forward on a few of the cases that we presented. Oh, sure. We can give you a follow about, up. Yeah, let people know how these folks did. Um, so, uh, I think two of them I cared for, and one I uh, knew about, was aged and caring for from a distance. So, the HIV infected man um, was. Overwhelmed, oh, thank you. was really emotionally overwhelmed by the diagnosis. Um, had a lot of sociocultural reasons uh, to complicate his, um, uh, his anticipation of being able to live with the diagnosis. Uh, but <clears throat> very actively, quickly engaged in care. Got him started on antiretroviral therapy. Um, got him engaged with our group. And uh, he now has, just. this is probably about three months ago he was tested, Um, he's now uh, on effective antiviral therapy with suppressed HIV, um, uh, and is emotionally coping incredibly well. He uh, did partner notification himself, I think he identified, if I remember right, four partners, one of whom he couldn't contact, the three others whom he did, Um, and is really doing great. Uh, The woman who was diagnosed uh, while she was pregnant uh, with syphilis. As an aside, a challenge in her initial care was that the OB group doesn't carry benzathine penicillin in their clinic, so they were challenged to figure out actually how to treat the patient. Um, That was in our clinic here at DH Lebanon. Uh, So she got treated. uh, As mentioned, there was an identified risk in her partner. Uh, Last we heard, Uh, He still hadn't been tested. Um, Don't know what the hesitancy there is. Uh, So she got treated, did well, and is pregnant. Uh, She is not delivered yet, but the child should do well. The uh, other woman uh, who gave birth to a child who was congenitally infected, diagnosed with secondary syphilis after delivery, um, she and her husband got treated. They both were positive. Uh, the child uh, was at Boston Children's for a couple weeks, really was pretty darn sick, uh, but uh, now is apparently doing well again. So, happily, those three have sort of come through this on the other end doing well.
1: And my um, proctocolitis patient got completed his three weeks of doxycycline, had a repeat anoscopy, and was completely cured and feeling better. All right.
0: All uh, right. There are no last questions. Great. Thank you, Antonio.